0: Guys, as you know, GoHunt.com Insider is the title sponsor of this podcast, and I want to thank them for their sponsorship. I wanted to give you a chance to listen to the head of the Insider program, Dave Losher, as he talks about the unit profiles section of the GoHunt Insider. Before we get to that, I want to remind you to use the JSCOT promo code when signing up for GoHunt Insider. All you have to do is go to www.gohunt.com forward slash insider, find the blue join now button, and use J. Scott as the promo code, and you'll receive a $50 Kuyu gift card. After you sign up, they will send you an electronic gift card that you can use at Kuyu. Now let's hear from Dave Losher. <laughs>
1: take a few minutes now and I'll show you the unit profile and you'll be able to see all the information that we've gathered and put within this profile to help you to plan for your next hunt. Go into Nevada and we'll pull up a unit right now. Right here as you get into the unit profile you're going to be able to see the species icons at the top and those are going to show you exactly which species are offered in that unit. As you go down the snapshot is going to be a quick overview of the unit, the buzz, the latest talk from the different hunters about the unit, as well as uh, what seasons are hot, maybe what seasons aren't so hot. On the ground, this section is gonna talk about the terrain, the vegetation, access, recommendations on lodging and camping, our uh, historical temperature and precipitation. This is extremely valuable because we're not simply going with information from the local town, the nearest town that may be 60, 80, or 100 miles away. Our data team has figured out a way to drop pin locations right within the unit Where it's most important where it's most relative to a hunter and we can talk about the temperature and the precipitation and display it on a multi-year basis so you have an understanding of exactly what it is you're going to encounter right here the species that are within this unit you're going to see these icons again that show each individual species that's offered for big game hunting and you can see right here we're on mule deer and as you go down then it's going to go into a season by season description as you can see the dates are right there And under these dates, you can see where the deer are most likely to reside as far as elevation. The data that corresponds with each individual season is going to show the resident and the non-resident quotas, the harvest success, and you can compare the correlation between an increase or a decrease in quota versus how that may have impacted the harvest success on any given year. Each individual season offered for mule deer will be covered. As I go up, if I want to take a look at elk, I can just click right here on the elk icon and here I can get the same thing, information on the elk herd in the unit. You're gonna notice on the right side of our unit profile, there's a ton of valuable information. First thing I want to point out, we'll get into the mapping in a moment, but I want to point out the quick tips. In this particular unit, limited cell phone service, often none, this is great, this is valuable stuff to know, should I get a satellite phone, is my cell phone gonna work? This moon phase calendar is extremely important, you know, you have a full moon, you have a no moon, cause that can impact your hunt. Now up on the mapping section, we've got that broken down on the map on a unit-by-unit unit basis. So you can actually expand the view by clicking right here, and you'll pull right into it. And here's our unit that we're talking about. And you can actually take it off of the map view, and you can go straight into the satellite view. Because if you want to get a, an actual picture representation of a given area, I'm going to drop this orange orange man right here on in unit 061. You can get the actual picture of the unit, of the terrain, and you can see exactly what it is. Now within this uh, within this map, here's another cool thing that we've put together for you as, as a user. Right here, these area services on the bottom. Within the area services, if you're looking for lodging, grocery, gas station, or the, the local airport, you can turn these on and turn these off as you need them. We spent a lot of time finding local hunters that write these profiles for us that actually have boots on the ground experience in these given units so that you could better plan for your upcoming hunt.
0: Guys, welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. I wanted to make you aware of what GoHunt.com Insider is giving away this month of August. They're giving away 10 Kuyu sleeping bags. Uh, This has a retail value of $4,500. They're 10 Kuyu Super Down 30 Degree Sleeping Bags in size long. It's the exact sleeping bag I've been using for a year, and I love this sleeping bag. All you have to do is be a GoHunt.com Insider member to win. So 10 lucky recipients of uh, Insider members are going to win sleeping bags. Uh, In the month of July, they gave away four hunts. They gave away... Four landowner tags with a retail value of $20,000 um, they gave away a doll sheep hunt uh, at the end of June uh, they've given away uh, spotting scopes uh, 10 pairs of Kennetrek boots uh, three Red Rock precision rifles and um, every month being a GoHunt.com insider member you have a chance to win all you have to do is be a member so um, if you sign up make sure to use the J. Scott promo code, and they will actually send you a Kuyu gift certificate worth $50. Um, So it's a good value. I want to thank GoHunt.com for their sponsorship of this podcast. Uh, Today is going to be an interesting episode. Um, It's going to be a lot of fun with uh, Cody Rich of the Rich Outdoors podcast. Uh, Cody Rich's podcast can be found on iTunes and um, we have a great conversation in this episode, and what's interesting is he's going to run this episode on his podcast, and I'm going to run this episode on my podcast, so uh, I want to thank you guys, the listeners, for your support of this podcast, and um, I wanted to also tell you about um, another sponsor of this podcast and that is um, DeadeyeOutfitters.com. Deadeye Outfitters makes quality t-shirts, sweatshirts, and hats designed with hunters in mind. Uh, use the J. Scott promo code and receive a 10% discount on all purchases at DeadeyeOutfitters.com. Uh, guys, uh, I get emails every day at jscottoutdoors@gmail.com, at gmail.com and I want to thank you for all your questions and all your comments. And uh, we've got a bunch of episodes that I've recorded uh, answering a bunch of questions that have come in that are going to be airing all throughout this fall. Um, so if you need to get a hold of me, want to leave some comments, w- have any questions, jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. Uh, you can follow along on Instagram, at jscottoutdoors. You can follow along on our YouTube channel, uh, jscottoutdoors, on our website, uh jscottoutdoors.com also our guiding website which is colburn c-o-l-b-u-r-n colburn and scottoutfitters.com elk season is uh coming here fast i'm gonna be in unit nine in arizona i'm gonna be guiding and i've got uh, sheep hunters uh, uh been real fortunate with uh clients uh this year and looking forward to a great fall um so guys i want to thank you for listening I also want to encourage you, if you haven't, it really helps us out. Go on uh, iTunes and uh, leave us uh, uh, five-star ratings and uh, positive comments. That helps our placement on iTunes. And uh, I just want to thank you guys for your support. Let's get right to the episode with Cody Rich of The Rich Outdoors.
2: Well hey Jay Scott, how are we doing? It's good to finally uh connect with you and uh kinda get to hear your side of everything and and this whole new podcasting world. It's kinda new to all of us and uh it's been it's been a good run for both of us. Having a lot of fun doing it. How about you?
0: Yeah, absolutely, Cody. I've been excited to um do an episode with you. I've enjoyed your podcast. Uh uh, we've had a few similar guests on and, and um you know it's so nice to hear um, your perspective on things, and uh, you know, you live in the Northwest. I live in the Southwest. Um, I think we each, you know, we're hunters. We have that common bond of being hunters, but I think each one of us has a little bit different perspective, and and I think that perspective is what makes uh, each of our podcasts unique. And and um, I'm, I am I love your podcast, and I'm anxious to um, do this. We're going to kind of do a cross. Uh, you're you're gonna uh, run this episode, and I'm gonna run it basically at the same time, and and I think it'll be a good co- cross promotion for both of us.
2: Oh, absolutely! I mean, uh, like we kind of talked about, I just don't think uh, either of our guests get enough, you know, the hunting world and and kind of. So it's good to cross promote and and uh, show, you know people a lot of people are new to the whole podcasting thing and so it's great to kind of get uh you know like you said a view from all these different perspectives and uh it'll be fun to do a show that's kind of north versus south and then talk about the different styles you know
0: absolutely so
2: have you spent much time hunting up in the northwest or in what would we call the north i suppose
0: no, absolutely not. Um, you know, uh, I hunted last September um uh in Mont out of Bozeman, Montana for elk and that's probably the furthest north that I've gone. I haven't spent any time hardly at all in the northwest. You know what I would maybe consider Washington, Oregon, uh Idaho. I have not hunted there at all, northern California. Um so it's always interesting to me to, to hear guys like you, and I've got friends, Michael Park and Casey Brooks, that are, you know, from that neck of the woods, and and to hear them talk about hunting Roosevelt's and, and talk about hunting in the thicker timber, and, you know, Jason Phelps of Phelps Game Calls is, is, is a guy I consider a friend, and... Um I admire uh you know the different tactics and and stuff that you guys use um up there on those animals. Oh
2: yeah, and it's just funny. There's actually a lot of guys that came out of that Oregon, Washington, you know, hunting the jungle as we like to call it that have kind of grown and now we hunt, you know, all, all over the country and it's it's funny how a lot of those guys have similar tactics cuz a lot of the way we grew up and a lot of the way we, you know, approach things is very different, you know, like from what you guys, you know, approach things down in the Southwest and the open country and the rolling hills and, and where water is so crucial.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's, there's definitely, um, I think tactics that, that we use that maybe you don't and vice versa. Um, you know, one thing I know is there's a lot of great hunters that are out of, out of that Northwest. Um, I, I was fortunate to guide uh, Russ Elms's daughter Avery last year on a desert bighorn sheep hunt and uh, actually my my elk client this year in unit nine uh, is is from Oregon as well and um, there's just a lot of hunters from your neck of the woods and, and in most cases the the hunters that I've encountered uh, from the northwest um, are very experienced and, and you know harvest a lot of animals and you know, basically been sportsmen, hunters, and fishermen for for a long, long time, and I think that speaks to, you know, the animals that you have and and the ability to, you know, I think the tag tags are uh, fairly liberal up there, and and you can you can get out in the woods, and so I think it creates a great environment for um, for good hunters.
2: Yeah, and I'm curious on your thoughts on 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 this because I'm sure you've guided a lot of guys from all over the world and and seen different tactics, but like you said, a lot of it I think comes from The fact that in Oregon here, you know, we can have a general season and and tags are very liberal and we have a lot of opportunity to hunt. And, you know, down in Arizona, there's opportunity, but a lot of the times you don't get to do it every year and you don't get that hook factor. Is that kind of what you think too?
0: Yeah, I mean there – it's kind of a, a a fine line because, or kind of puts you between a rock and a hard place because on one hand, you would like as much opportunity as you possibly can, but then Arizona is managed for, uh, you know, it's probably the most trophy-oriented state, meaning they, they manage for older age class animals, and we happen to have big trophies almost in every category, you know, with elk, mule deer, bighorn sheep, antelope, you name it, bears, um, a turkey all across the board is, uh, you know, our, our antlered uh, animals and our horned animals are, uh, you know, the, the Arizona game and fish, uh, specifically manages for older age class animals, and so that means not getting drawn. And, uh, the reality if you want, you know, four or five of the best elk units, or two or three of the best mule deer, or Uh, you know, you're going to have to wait a long, long time. And so people ask me a lot, would I rather have an elk tag in Arizona in my pocket every year or am I okay waiting 10 years between tags? Well, one of the reasons that I became a guide is honestly is to spend more time in the woods. And fortunately, uh, from my perspective, you know, I get to spend as much time, if not more, being a a guide and outfitter down in arizona and yeah a lot of times those those tags are not my own and i have to go to other states to do so um but on the other hand we have great quality hunting we have really big bulls really big bucks our rams are you know pretty much second to none and and you know big antelope it's 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 kind of uh, puts me in a unique position because, yes, I don't get to hunt my own personal tags as much, but uh, getting to see the the quality of of the hunt and quality of the animals, um, you know, I've said before that it it kind of – when you grow up in Arizona, you kind of get a trophy hunting mentality, and I know that's a word that's being thrown around all over right now in the media – But the reality is, uh, you know, if if I were to go hunt just for meat in Arizona, um, I would be done within 30 minutes probably of every hunt that I wanted to go on because, uh, you know, there's a lot of animals around. I I like to look and try and find and and find some of the biggest, most mature animals. And I like to, you know, on a 14-day hunt, I just assume shoot on the 13th or 14th morning. Um, So – to answer your question, I, I kind of like it how it is. I like the fact that when I draw a tag that it's going to be a premium tag and that I'm going to have a chance to, to look over a lot of animals and get a lot of hunting in and, and be able to harvest a, a trophy animal.
2: So you kind of tipped on it a little bit, but – what do you think the average mentality of, you know, someone growing up in Arizona or or a resident in Arizona? You talked about the trophy mentality which, you know, like you said, we should probably use that word carefully and with uh, as many <laughs> caveats as we can. But there's a different mentality like you said in the Southwest. When up in Oregon and Washington, a lot of people grow up, it's very family-oriented and, you know, y'all you go hunting together and it's these big groups and that's kind of the way I grew up. Elk hunting was very much a rifle community and i got into bow hunting at probably age 12 but you grow up and and you know it's a big family event and everyone goes hunting and it just seems like it has a very different feel up here than in the southwest
0: what i would say is i would i would like to shed a little bit of light on that because I hear that from time to time. And I think w- what people think of the Southwest and, and, and Arizona, New Mexico and Nevada uh, somewhat and, you know, a little bit of Utah is that uh, that we're all just out there for ourselves trying to kill the biggest animals we can. and I, And for sure, there are a few people like that. But just like you talk about the family-oriented, the the, the 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 friends, you know, going out with your hunting buddies, and um, in Arizona, uh, you wouldn't believe it, but actually, a lot of times when a buddy draws a tag or a family member draws a tag, you know, he's got four or five friends and family that go with him on the tag, camp with him, uh, or her, and 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 you know, help. Glass, help you know um, cook and, and and it is a very uh tight knit community, so I think one of the things that the quote unquote trophy hunting and you know Arizona and some of the southwestern states is you get this feeling that everybody's just out for themselves, everybody's just out for the biggest animal i don't see that being the case; I see most camps you know having four five six, seven, eight people in a camp. Uh, some of which maybe there's two tags and there's eight people in the camp. All of the other guys are there for moral support. You know, they're there getting gas and supplies. They're there up on points glassing. And and so for me, uh, and what I witness and see is it's very communal and it's very um, family oriented. Uh, I've got, I don't have kids myself, but I know lots and lots of families that you know when their boys or, or g- girls are legal to hunt at age ten, you know it's a family deal to go up and and go on the first deer hunts and and so I would say to you and to your listeners if if people have thought that you know the Southwest style of hunting is you know uh, you know selfish and 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 I just don't see that to be the case. I see it. You know, very communal, very family oriented and, and everybody working for the common goal of trying to harvest an animal.
2: Yeah, I think you're right there. And a lot of what you see, like you said, is, you know, when someone draws a tag, it's an entire family affair versus having, you know, four or five tags within that hunting party.
0: I, I, yeah, and I think – Unfortunately, Cody, um, you know, in trying to recruit, uh, the younger generation, I think it, it is a little frustrating at times, um, to have Arizona be a draw state where it is challenging for, you know, youth to get a tag. But our state does do a lot of things, um, over the counter turkey hunts and, and there's, uh, the, the Arizona Elk Society and the National Wild Turkey Federation kind of partner and they do these junior, um, turkey hunting clinics or, in like three different parts of the state, and you know some of the some of the clinics, you know they'll have 150 kids um, that go out and hunt for the first time, and so um, you know any program like that, I'm a big proponent of of, of taking a kid hunting and fishing. Uh, I'm a perfect example of taking a kid hunting and fishing. You know it works; it keeps them hooked. Uh, growing up, I I I wasn't really exposed to hunting and fishing. Um, my grandmother bought me field and stream magazine, I think when I was five years old and I was always one of those kids that read the the magazine from cover to cover and wanted to know everything there was to know about it, about hunting and fishing and just absorbed everything. But I, I really didn't get to go a lot. Um, I didn't really come from a huge hunting or fishing family, but the times that I did get to go fishing or I did get to go on a quail hunt or rabbit hunt or whatever I just soaked it up and um, I was always the kid that you know was at the lake and just saw the boats out in the water and just thought if I ever get a chance to have a boat or if I ever get a chance to go fishing with someone in a boat or or or, or hunting I want to do it and and as I got a little bit older and shot my first year and then uh, went with friends uh, different friends you know dad's inviting me along uh, I basically was just engulfed in in hunting and fishing and that's that's all I wanted to do
2: yeah now I, I got a question for you which we're probably both terrible to answer this because neither one of us have kids but in the aspect when we're talking a lot of you know sportsmen getting their kids into hunting like you said in the southwest it can be difficult at times because it's hard to get your kids tags as much as to keep them interested anyway. Um, now in the Northwest, it's like, we, we have tag after tag, a lot of youth opportunities, and it seems like you can always get your kid a tag. Um, do you think that holds a difference between the South and up North where, where the abundance of tags is, is much higher?
0: Well, one of the things I would say is, um, in, in Arizona speaking specifically and in New Mexico for that matter, when the youth, get drawn and they have the ability to go hunting, the hunting's pretty darn good. Where I would suspect in states that, you know, tags are very plentiful. Maybe they go all weekend and maybe they don't see anything to shoot at. Whereas if you do get a tag in Arizona or New Mexico, um, the hunting is going to be pretty darn good. So, you know, would it be better to have everybody have tags, but maybe their experience isn't as good Uh, Maybe they don't see any game, maybe they don't even get a shot opportunity, or is it better to have a higher quality maybe experience um, and maybe have to sit out every other year? I don't know what the answer is. Um, I, I do know that spending time camping spending time in the outdoors, whether you're being successful in your harvest or not is important. And I think, um, you know, my, my hunting partner and guiding partner, Dar Colburn, he takes his boys and he has ever since they were little, you know, fishing, he takes them camping, he takes them hunting and, you know, it may be a deer hunt, but they're, you know, um, you know, take their bows and they're shooting targets during the day and and anything he can do to get them involved. And I think that's, The important thing with with the youth these days is just getting them out, getting them active, um, getting them, you know, into the outdoors, and and the best thing is if they could be successful, if they could see some game, if they could get a shot opportunity, I mean, that's going to hook them for life, and so – I don't know the answer to your question. I just know that, you know, getting kids out there is super important and I think having some successes is, is hugely important as well.
2: Yeah, and just the reason I ask is, you know, I've taken a lot of kids out and I love taking kids out and there's nothing better than letting them get or having them get an opportunity, whether it's to see game to take game, but that's the that's really the hooking point. And I've taken a lot of kids out, you know, up here in the Northwest, you're not always going to see things. You know, you're not going to be successful every single time you go out, whether that's seeing game or harvesting game. But at the same time, you take a lot of those kids out and it seems like you're, man, I just got to get them hooked because they have to, you know, they have to, see what I see. And that's the problem is that a lot of times you take these kids out and, you know, that wasn't fun. We didn't see anything. All we did was hike around. And, you know, maybe that sinks in later in life and, you know, there's probably a bigger picture there, but that definitely seems to be one of the the things I've seen, you know, hunting up in the Northwest is it can be difficult to to get that kid hooked.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no. And I, I I can see that happening. And, and, um, you know, I just want to say to all the listeners out there, if you have a chance to take a kid hunting or fishing, please do so camping, whatever it may be. And, and, and don't make it, uh, don't make, make it an end result where, you know, it has to be a certain size buck or, you know, it has to be a buck or, you know, if they go out and shoot a doe, great. If they go out and shoot a cow elk, that's fantastic. And, 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 you know, don't, Make it as fun as possible. If it's going to be extremely cold, you know, in the morning and and they're just going to be miserable, maybe make a great afternoon hunt. I mean, make it where they're going to want to come back and want to do it. I think the worst thing you can do is take a kid out in conditions that, you know, are not going to make make a great time and he's not going to want he or she's not going to want to do it
2: oh absolutely or the fact that you know we're running high speed gear and everything is you know a lot more comfortable for us but sometimes these kids you know they got buy mart walmart gear boots that don't fit gloves are too big and that just ups the misery factor to a point where it's just not fun for them Absolutely. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. So what kind of good opportunities is there down in the southwest? I mean, there's Arizona, but as a whole, you know, there's a lot of good deer tags down there. What, what's your best recommendation for youth hunters or taking youth down there?
0: For me, um, I think the best hunt for kids to go on is a turkey hunt because I think they get to hear the turkeys gobbling. I'm a, I'm a huge turkey nut. I love turkey hunting and, and um, I go, you know, multiple places each year and, and um, I love turkey hunting and I think it's, I've taken my, my nephews um, started them when they were little. And I think the great thing about turkey hunting is you get to hear them gobbling and, You usually get to have some interaction, see them fly out of the tree, see them do a little bit of strutting. Even if they don't come in, even if they don't get a shot, they get to feel like they're part of the hunt. The other thing that they get to see is they get to see some of the strategy. They know that you're getting up early. They know that you're, you know, getting in close to a roost tree. They know that you're sitting patiently, waiting for them to gobble. And so they can kind of see that there's, there's, it's not just you know drive down the road and shoot them out the truck window. It's that is not. That is not the type of hunting that we're condoning. What we're trying to do is teach them that this is a sport, that this is fun, that there's a lot to it, that they need to be a student of the game in order to be um, successful. And, you know, another thing is there's a lot of um, antlerless um, cow, you know, cow hunts. There's antlerless hunts where uh, for elk uh, in Arizona, New Mexico, a lot of the different states, Utah, you um, where, you know, very liberal tags pretty much every year they could get a get an antlerless tag. Um and I think that's uh, a, another great hunt. Also, um in Arizona we have junior deer tags and there's um also units uh in Arizona that's a general season but they're whitetail, they're two-deer tags and a lot of times the units go undersubscribed meaning they have tags left over. And so in my opinion, getting kids Having a tag in their pocket, letting them know the importance of getting that tag, letting them know about all the aspects of preparing for that hunt, going on the hunt, and then trying to execute your plan. I mean, I think that's all part of making it fun for them. Um, But, you know, I would say turkey first, uh, elk second, uh, and deer third um, is probably where I would start
2: yeah i think you're right um turkey is one of those things that like you said it's it's generally a little bit easier than elk hunting it's it's very similar so they kind of get the same feel for it uh and up in oregon you know we're allowed two turkey tags and and uh it's one of those things where you can hunt uh pretty much all over the state there's a lot of opportunity you know up in the up in the northwest um oregon and washington both have some great youth hunts uh for cows early season as well they actually do in oregon we have uh a cow hunt that starts in August and kind of goes up to bow season, so you can kind of get some of the bugling action and and, and calling and get a get a, the experience of elk hunting in, in the in the country without the pressure and you know the elk haven't been pressured yet, so they're not as as spooky. So there's a lot of great hunts up northwest, uh, a lot of over the counters, a lot of lot of possibilities for kids. That's awesome. So want to dive into kind of what we originally had talked about in the north versus south debate, uh, so to speak, uh, is different tactics. And I'm just curious, I mean, you haven't spent a lot of time in the northwest per se, the Pacific Northwest, should I to say, but how did you see tactics change from, say, where you hunted in, in Montana versus where you're guiding down in Arizona?
0: Well, I think one of the biggest things that I noticed um, between, say, Arizona New Mexico, Utah, and Montana. From a from a behavioral standpoint, um, I am a big proponent of cow calling. I'm not a huge bugler. Uh, I feel like I'm very proficient with a cow call, uh, both with the diaphragm and with a you know bite and blow or open read style call. And um, while I did call in some bulls in Montana, I noticed that the where I was in Montana, the bugling was so good and so intense. There were so many bulls bugling. Um, a friend I went with, Jason, he's like, do you have a bugle? And I'm like, yeah, actually, I actually have one back at camp. He, like, he said, let's take it out. And um, he started bugling, and bulls were coming unglued. And, you know, my friends Michael Park and Casey Brooks, who are from the Northwest, uh, they like to bugle. They cow call some, too, but they like to bugle a lot, and they have a lot of success bugling bulls. One of the things that I saw happen in Montana is that, you know, bugling worked just about as good as cow calling. And in Arizona, because a lot of our bulls are pretty darn old, and pretty darn wary, as well as the cows, um, you know, in when I, my experience in the woods is when a guy blows a bugle that's not on point, uh, those elk shut up, those elk move away. And uh, I did not see that happening in Montana. I saw uh, whether Jason's bugle was good or bad, uh, they they responded even even on some if, if he was out of wind or what have you and it just didn't sound exactly right. Um, they still came unglued. Whereas, um, you know, I'm a proponent of sweet talking elk as a, as opposed to wanting to pick a fight. Now, uh, I did an interview with Corey Jacobson, who i whom I believe you did also, and um, you know he's a huge proponent of you know pick a fight. He does cow call too, but I mean he, he loves the bugle bulls in and um, I my personal opinion is in Arizona and in New Mexico where maybe there's more pressure maybe there's more roads maybe the elk here and see more people I don't feel bugling is uh at, as good of a tactic as say cow calling.
2: That's super interesting. And and Jason and I talk about this a lot. And Jason and I are very or Jason Phelps, I should clarify, for the listeners. Jason Phelps and I are, are very similar. We both grew up, you know, hunting Roosevelt. So we have very similar tactics which are very different than, you know, say Arizona, New Mexico. And so to us, I would be completely lost without my bugle tube. And, you know, just that's how it comes about. And I've hunted in New Mexico and I'm just curious, do you think that comes from hunting pressure or does it come from the age of the animals? Does it comes from the cow to bull ratios? What do you think is the biggest proponent of the bulls not responding to bugles or being wary of bugles?
0: Well, first and foremost, I would say, I think you can call in a lot of bulls, young bulls bugling. Uh, I think you could call in a lot of young bulls. I think when I'm specifically talking about, say, and here we go, go into this point system, but say, you know, Six by sixes that are you know six years old, you know three fifty type bulls and and over, I think they've been around enough and he, here here's my example um if a guy blows a bugle and he's a hundred yards away, most I would say ninety nine out of hundred times at a hundred yards, the human ear can say that's a human, that's not an elk now. There are a handful, Jason Phelps, Corey Jacobson. I haven't heard you call Cody, but I'm assuming you're good at it. There are some guys that can sound really, really good. Now, that same call at 100 yards, in my opinion, a cow call, used sparingly, you know, just kind of a couple calls because probably the shortness of the call, the human ear at 100 yards, probably maybe 30 out of 100 times could say that's a hunter. Mm -hmm. I think people use the bugle well, let's put it this way. I think people that don't have success with the bugle are people that don't practice and don't sound really good. They don't sound authentic. They either bugle too long. Their cadence is wrong. You know, maybe they go up, down in octave, you know, fluty And those elk, they, I, I believe that those elk um, associate that with human behavior. Mm-hmm. Therefore, they, they move away from the call. I think in high, uh, where you've got area where you've got a lot of bulls, I think bugling can be effective because of the competition. I think in an area where you have a lot of cows and not many bulls, in my opinion, bulls, in my experience, would rather flee than fight. Now, you talk to Jason and you talk to Corey, and they might argue with me. Jason, I think, would definitely argue and say they want to fight over anything, Mm -hmm. I don't see that being the case with Arizona and New Mexico bulls.
2: I would agree a
0: lot with that. Um, I
2: would say, like you said, when you talk about a bugle, there's a huge difference between blowing a latex bugle and someone who is proficient with a reed and knows kind of what they're saying or it, at a minimum knows the size of animal that they're portraying. Um, I think like what Jason and, and Corey, you know, they say – that they would argue that a big bull will fight, well, that has a lot to do with how you approach that situation and bugling into a call versus is you know how far away you are um I think you're right with the cow calls in my experience, I have wasted a lot of time with elk cow calling them in only to find out it's a younger bull the f- you know four to five year old range, even a six year old range I would say that you know, six seven eight is very approachable with a bugle. And I think you're right. Some of the older bulls, uh, they'll kind of know or they'll shut up or they're going to approach that differently than that, that teenage teenager bull that's just gung ho ready to fight everything. So it kind of depends on what the age class of bull you're calling at. But in my experience or my opinion, I use a bugle, as a litmus test almost basically i don't want to spend three four hours with a bull that i'm not going to harvest so if i challenge that bull and am aggressive with that bull i'm only looking for the dominant bull in an area and so being that i'm in thick country i'm not going to be able to see him most of the time i need to basically have that bull commit or not commit right off the get-go And like you said, a lot of times it will push him away. That doesn't necessarily mean to me that he's not the dominant bull or I shouldn't go after him. I'll usually pressure him. Um, Maybe he's just trying to find a bench or an area that he feels comfortable. Maybe he's tucking his cows away. I don't know all of the exact situation around that. So I'm just going to keep pressuring him and and basically looking for him to turn around. And that's kind of been my theory is just to use that challenge bugle and to see how big of a bull he is.
0: And I I absolutely agree with you. And I can tell from hearing you talk that you've, you've hunted elk a lot. And I think it's important for people to understand that, you know, you throw out the challenge bugle. You, you're taking his temperature right away. What I see happen down in the southwest that I think is, is problematic for people and causes them grief is, they'll get out of the truck, they'll walk a little ways, they'll fire off a bugle and a bull answers. They will immediately answer that bull back. My tactic on that would be if a bull answers and gives his position away, I'm going to close the distance at least in half, depending on if he's, you know, 300 yards, 200 yards, a half a mile, a mile, you know, as far out as I can hear, I'm going to at least close the distance in half. What I see... Uh, causing people problems is they're just calling the whole way that they're moving into that animal. They are calling letting that animal know where their position is and I think that's a huge mistake and I hear it I'm only speaking from what I hear people do and I trust me I've made every mistake in the book but I kind of in the back of my mind think I've already learned that lesson and here I'm listening to this guy over here have to learn the same lesson and I would tell people When you locate that bull and he bugles and he's given his position away in what I do is I try and get as close to that elk as I can. Now that he's given me his direction, I move in his direction with the wind in my face as best that I can using my eyes as quickly as I can. I'm using my eyes to make sure he's not coming to me. Now, when that bull answers again, I am not one to answer back. I am one to let that allow me to focus even more and hone in even more on that bull's position. Mm -hmm. I feel like if I can get within 80 yards, 90 yards of that bull, I can call that bull in almost every time. That's my opinion. I feel like I see people and I've made the mistake myself of going, "Okay, here I come. I hear you. I'm answering back what that does is that that bull is just going to stay put and what's he going to do he's going to have his eyes wide open and he's going to be looking in your direction if he's bugled three minutes ago and you're moving towards him quickly he doesn't really realize that you're coming to him so he's not as aware and alert whereas if if as you close the distance you're letting him know you're coming he's going to be dead on alert and looking in your direction so from from my perspective bugle is great to locate and even if you get in close to him and he's got cows and now you're in there tight 50 60 yards a bugle will almost work all the time because now you've gotten uh quote unquote in his face and you've even given him the choice to flee or to fight but he, you're so close that if he flees all those cows are going to know that he flees mm-hmm. now i may be reading too much into it but if, if you get tight enough on a bull they will come and fight, but you've got to get close to them to get them to come to you to to you know, bugle to bugle. And that's where it's tough down in, in,
2: uh, in the Southwest because uh, well, a lot of times it can be more open. And so you're going to get picked off by a cow somewhere and that's, it's, it can be a lot harder. In my experience hunting in New Mexico, it seems like, man, you know, they can see me from so far away. I'm used to hunting in Oregon where nothing can see me till I'm three yards away from it. So, um, did you experience a little bit of change in, in, um, in the behavior of the elk, once you were in Montana versus you know down in Arizona, you said that you were a lot more bugle friendly up in Montana. Did that change once you close the distance, or are you still trying to cow call once you close the distance?
0: You know, I, I I always go back to I'm a cow caller, I'm a lover at heart. Um, when I when I'm trying to call elk, and I I feel like like I said, if I can get in, if I can get in 80 or 90 yards uh, of an elk, in my opinion, I can almost always call them into bow range i might not be able to call them to 10 yards but i can almost always get them to come another 30 or 40 yards and i i think uh taking that sweet talk taking that lover mentality i've learned sounds that are that are soft and nasally by by being around a lot of elk um and hearing those sounds that those cows make to those bulls you know, that are, that are not audible, maybe say outside of a hundred yards, you have to be within, you know, a hundred yards to even hear the sounds they're making. Those are the types of sounds that I've found that once you do close the distance on those elk, that, that can be extremely effective. And I'm not talking about the standard, you know, yeah, yeah, cow call. I'm talking about the, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, the soft, the, the the little muse and just the little soft nasally stuff um, it, it works so effective uh, down where I'm at.
2: So you've been able to take a lot of really great bulls. I mean, some of the top caliber bulls in Arizona. Do you feel like there's a big difference in in that top level bull? Do you approach a say you had a 400 class bull? Are you going to approach that differently than any other bull, or what's your what's your mindset there?
0: Well, my mindset is, I I like to observe. Fortunately, we we hunt in areas that are pretty open, and, and a lot of times I will have observed that bull's behavior to find out if he, if he you know if he's a real aggressive bull or if he's a you know just likes to kind of tend to his cows and you know kind of glunk around and, and you know just tend his cows. Um, so I try and you know figure out what kind of bull I'm dealing with uh, one of the biggest tactics I use is I like to glass a lot. I like to find anytime I go into a new unit, the first thing I'll do is try and identify the knobs and different areas where I can see elk from and, uh, try and establish behavioral patterns, try and establish where they're coming in and out of the trees, uh, you know, where they're watering and, i like to get up high and i like to use my eyes i think one of the biggest difference between the southwest and the northwest is you know you're talking about elk not even be able to see you until you're three yards away where i may be up and be watching a bull that i want to harvest that's you know three miles away and i can see him pretty much all morning mm-hmm. so I, i'm when i'm to answer your question. I approach big bulls uh, way more gingerly than I approach uh, uh, smaller bulls, and a lot of times because of the ability to glass and be able to establish behavioral patterns uh, by glassing, I, I, I can make a prediction as to where my plan of attack is. There's times when I'll sit up on a knob, I will have the bow in my hand and I will not even be down in the jungle with them. I will be up on a knob because I know that my time uh, to kill that bull is, is not in the morning. It's in the evening or it's it's midday when they go to their wallow. And I, I think being a good glasser and being aware of what those elk and, and patterning them, I think that gives you a huge advantage. And I think being patient and being aggressive at the same time. I am a very uh, by nature I'm impatient, but when I'm hunting, I try and be as patient as I can. I try and look for that um, weak point or that time when they're the most vulnerable, and that's when I'm going to jump on them. Uh, Randy Ulmer is is a, a great friend of mine, and and I follow a lot of his writings and and have hunted with him before and. You know, he's notorious for sitting up uh, and not even going after a a particular buck or bull uh, for days until he knows that that bull is in the right position, in the right spot, to then go ahead and go after him and get aggressive.
2: It's funny. I can actually see the the direct parallels between the southwest and the northwest. And it seems like in the southwest, you're covering as much ground as you possibly can with your eyes. Well, in the northwest, we're doing the same thing, but we don't have eyes. We can't see anything. So our tactic would be to cover as much ground as we possibly can with the only thing we can locate, so a bugle. So basically, we're covering. And in the northwest, we're fortunate to have a lot of roads, a lot of logging access. So one of my systems is to cover as much ground as I possibly can, locate, 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 which is basically the same thing you're doing, but you're doing it with your eyes. Now, and now once you get into watching that behavior of that elk, and that's very crucial because you have to know what that elk's mentality is doing. We're doing the same thing, but what I'm doing is I'm listening for it because all I can do is hear him. So I may sit up and I know a bulls in an area but say it took me 30 minutes to get him to even say a word. That's not the day to go after that bull. So I'm going to come back and check his temperature, you know, every couple of days, every few days or every day probably and just kind of sure. get an idea. And it's the same thing you're talking about and you know, sitting up on a ridge and looking at this bull, you're getting an idea of what his temperament is, what he likes, where he goes. I'm getting the same feel, but I have to do it a voice. So I'm sitting up there and I'm locating this bull and I'll try to play with him. I'll try to get him hot, try to see if he'll get fired up, but I'm doing it from afar and I'm not going to push him. I'm not going to, I'm going to make sure I don't go in there because I don't want to push him out of his habitat. Same thing you're doing, you're staying away. Um, a bull I killed, a really nice rosie I killed uh, a couple years ago. I, I probably went back and tested him three or four times and it wasn't until about five days later and I came in and one morning, and I'd actually called the bull pretty close, but he was real quiet in the daylight, and he started to slip up above me, and I knew he was going to try to get my wind. So I backed out. Three days later, I came back, tested him again, and he was super hot. So it's like, okay, today's the day. And so then you slip in. Once you know kind of his temperament and and what – he's obviously a lot hotter the odds of killing that bull go way up because now he's he's kind of stupid. I mean, he's bugling his brains out. So that's when we I slipped in there and uh, was able to bugle right at him and, and bugle him right up. But the same, very similar, I see. You know, just very different tactics, I guess.
0: Yeah, and I I think you would attest to when you're sliding in on a bull and you're taking his temperature. I mean, you're listening to the intensity of his bugle, and you're int- you're listening to how quickly he's responding back to your bugle. And if he jumps all over you and say you don't answer him back, and he jumps all over you like, get the heck out of my territory, you know that that's a bull that you can probably slide up there, get in there pretty tight, and you hammer off a bugle, you're betting that he's going to come over. You better have an arrow knocked. And I, I think that's the same. I think elk or elk um, – and I and I think you just have to kind of judge those right times. I mean, it's the same thing parallel to turkey or you know elk is you know there'll be a turkey goblin and I'll just walk away. And someone hunting with me say, "What are you doing?" I say, "There's no way I'm going to call that bird in." He's like, "We well, haven't even tried us." I can just tell. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is from their intensity. You know, if you don't have anything else going, then maybe go try and mess with the bird, but you know, if you know that you can go over and there's another bird, you know, a half mile away or three quarters of a mile away, you know, definitely the same with elk where you want to work the ones that you can work. Um, I think when you're targeting a specific animal, which we end up doing, a lot of the bulls that we killed are bulls that, you know, we've scouted out and we know their bugle, we know their patterns and that's the bull that we're after. I think, like you've said, I mean, we have to pick the right time to slide in there on them, and you—you, it—it takes a lot of willpower, it takes a lot of discipline to not go after something if you know it's not right. But the worst thing in our country to do is blow a bull out and change his pattern because then it's back to ground zero, and and all that intel that you've gathered is is gone away.
2: Oh yeah, and it's even worse in the northwest because you'll you'll lose a bull, I, I bet. and there's yeah. no way you're
0: finding that bull again.
2: I mean, you just is not gonna happen. And another thing on that is a lot of times you have to know exactly where he is. And like you said, you have to have the discipline to not go after that bull if he's not in a location. If he's in, you know, some thick repot or he's in some thick jungly stuff, and you're like, Well, I got, you know, a ten percent chance of this even happening, even if he is hot. Stay out of that situation because, you know, that evening maybe he's on a bench that's just open timber and there's 80-yard shots all around you and you can see that bull coming and you can prepare. You know, a lot of that is just what is the best situation and what's the percentage? I always think about what's my percentage right now? Can it increase? You know, what's it going to look like? And like you said, that's it's hard to do sometimes, especially these days when we have hunters on every ridge and every corner. But sometimes you has got to take that gamble
0: yeah absolutely you know one question I would ask you that I'm curious about is is the bugle and the and the depth perception in thick you know rainforest type thick country um and I, I don't know if rainforest is the right type of word, but you know thick canopy um as opposed to out in the open you know deserts of Arizona or New Mexico or Nevada where you know I think a bugle's going to carry a lot further I'm curious um about you know from bringing your tactics from the northwest down to New Mexico where you've hunted, um, did you notice that the bull sounded further or closer away?
2: Oh, absolutely. I remember uh, I've hunted in New Mexico twice now. Um, and both times it, it was the same, very similar was, you know, you're always expecting that bull to be a lot closer and I would set up and it just wouldn't work out. Cause I think a lot of the times I was setting up, you know, expecting that bull to be a lot closer than he was. And that sound just down there, it carries so far in open country that, like you said, it is a rainforest up here. And, uh, I mean, we have open country on the East side and I spend a lot of time over there as well, but I definitely cut my teeth and grew up hunting Roosevelt's. And so, you know, I always expect those things to be a lot closer. Closer, and then I always end up setting up way too far away.
0: Yeah, and and I think as you know, um, being able to tell how close you are or far you are from a bull is huge, because if you set up too far from them, there's not a chance they're going to come most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think uh, people can realize that you know, coming from one area to the other, they have to realize that you know, in more open country, the bulls you know are going to sound differently. Uh, and, and 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 then if you go in thick timber, they may be right on top of you, but they sound like they're a long ways away. Yeah.
2: So out of curiosity, how does your tactics change early season to late season? Are you doing a lot of calling cow calling early season or or how do your tactics change?
0: Now, when you say early to late, do you mean within the rutting period, or do you mean going from the rut to, say, November hunts, the the, the way late season?
2: Oh, I'm talking just within the rut. Now, what's your guys' season dates?
0: Our season dates this year are, uh, in most units in Arizona, September 11th uh, through the 20... Let's see, so 26th, I believe. Wow. And... Um, you know, so in most units with and those dates kind of bump back and forth. I want to say seven days they kind of rotate, so they'll go and then it'll be the latest day and then it'll bounce back. I think some of the earliest days are the seventh or eighth of of September, and some of the latest days that the hunt starts is say the fourteenth or fifteenth. Um, but you know, this year we've had a great moisture year. Um, my prediction is the rut in most units will kick off early. Uh, they'll be bugling really good by the opener on the 11th. Um, I would say early, early in the rut is your best time to kill. In my opinion, the biggest bulls um, day in and day out, because a lot of times they haven't established their herds. Um, they haven't um, gathered up exact, you know, their exact cows. They're still trying to figure out who's who they're still got the pecking order going on. And, and, you know, late season, I would say, you know, they've they've got their they've gathered their cows. Uh, yes, the rut becomes more intense, the bugling becomes more intense because of the uh, you know the estrus period, and actually cows are being bred probably later in the season. Um, but sometimes I think it can be harder because they've already gathered their herds, and you know, at that point there's satellite bulls all around, and it's hard to sneak in on one elk when you know, there's 40 other eyeballs around. Um, whereas the early season, you know, a lot of times some of the biggest bulls are still by themselves because, you know, the actual breeding hasn't started yet, you know, and, and those 370 and better bulls, a lot of times are the older bulls and they're just waiting because they know that, you know, the, the smaller pipsqueak bulls are just with the cows and that there's actually no breeding going on. So I think you can be aggressive, uh, early in the season. Um, Uh, with your calling and i think you have a better chance of a big lone bull just coming in whereas later in the season i think you have to uh really watch the cows really watch the other satellite bulls that are around and, and and it does become a little bit harder sometimes they're a lot more visible and they're a lot more vocal but they're harder to slip into that uh you know Bow hunting range.
2: Yeah, there's always a lot of eyeballs late in the season. Does your sure. your uh, scouting techniques, not scouting, locating techniques for early season change? I mean, from are you locating with the bugles, or are you just locating with your eyes?
0: You know, so much of what I do is, is glassing, and and I have people sometimes that come with me. I have people that come and help me at times, uh, friends and family, and a lot of times they why are we glassing every day? I want to go in there and, you know, stir it up with them. And I've learned that if you have the ability to see the animal that you're hunting, you're way better off and your percentages of killing that animal go way up if you be patient, like I said before, and wait till the exact time and the right time. And I feel like patterning those bulls and figuring out exactly where they go in, sometimes in the mornings, on, even on a guided hunt, sometimes in the mornings, we won't even be out in the field. We will be up on point, and we will watch where those elk go in to the trees. We will watch them as far as we can and try and bed them down and make predictions of where they're going to come back to that same area in the evening. And sometimes the evening hunts can be the best time to kill those bulls. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... You know, glassing, I'll be honest with you, I very rarely even carry a bugle with me in Arizona. I carry obviously all my cow calls, but usually our bulls are bugling enough that I don't even have to get them started. And and that's one of the benefits of hunting in Arizona is the bugling is, is usually outstanding. And a lot of times before the season starts, I already know the bull's bugle of the, of the elk that we want to harvest. Mm-hmm. Or... If if I do get out on the ground, I'm out there trying to listen for that bull-specific voice and so that when I get in the trees with them and there's six or eight bulls bugling, I know which ones we can go after and say, look, we're not even going after that one, that one, that one. That's the one we want, the one that's in the back. We're going after him because he always chuckles at the end of his bugle or whatever it may be.
2: Yeah. So out of curiosity a lot of guys I know a few guys that are headed to Arizona this year um unguided and what advice do you have for guys anyone heading south from the north on a big bull hunt this year you know a little bit different tactics like we talked about what's your what's your advice and what's the biggest problems you or what's the biggest hang ups you see with guys coming down south
0: well i think first and foremost if they've drawn an Arizona or New Mexico tag i think You know, they don't come around very often, and I think spending as much time before the season as they can is is of utmost importance. Um, You know, if, if their work can allow them to take a week or 10 days or 14 days, as much time as they can get down into their units, I think the better, because the more time that they can spend glassing, and what I would say in any units that they're hunting, try and find before you even get down there, the, the, the historical glassing points, talking to other hunters, where can you see elk from? I feel like if I can see them, my effectiveness goes way up. Okay, that's number one. Number two is they need to realize that Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada in some parts for that matter, even some of Utah is very arid compared to what they're used to and that water is key. So not only the glassing points are some of the things that I'm looking for, but also water holes. And most of Arizona, uh, we don't have a lot of live water. We don't have a lot of streams, creeks, springs, what have you. Most of our water tanks are, are um, you know, dirt tanks or, or windmills that have uh, water troughs. And so they need to understand that those elk have to water every day. Uh, It would be my uh, advice to go and check out all of the water sources. Go to as many tanks as you can find. Walk around those tanks. Check for sign. Check for tracks. Try and establish, you know, how many elk are using these tanks. Uh, Look for rubs. Look for fresh sign, okay? So you're up on points. You're glassing. You're checking water holes. And then the next tactic that I would tell people is at night, once it gets dark, go back and eat your dinner. And get back in your vehicle because there's a lot of roads and go out and start driving. Take your GPS, take your map, and start driving. Now, drive in these areas, pull off to the side of the road and roll your windows down. It's pitch black dark. Shut your vehicle off. Have it where your lights automatically turn off when you shut your vehicle off, not where you shut the pull over. You should turn your vehicle off, your lights are still on. You know, your, your car door's dinging, all of that stuff. Turn all that stuff off. Very first thing you do is you pull over, shut the truck off. lights, everything goes off. Wh- whoever's with you in your car, tell them, keep their mouth shut. Very first thing you're doing is you're going to listen because a lot of times those bulls will bugle at the vehicle. I know it sounds crazy, but they hear the vehicle and they're just bugling, telling it, hey, there's a vehicle. What I don't know what they're telling, but they're they bugle. So immediately have your windows already down. Shut the truck off. Stick your head out. Don't open the door and listen. What you're doing is you're trying to count bulls. You're trying to see how many bulls are in the area. You don't get out of your vehicle. You sit there and you listen. You let them bugle or whatever. Okay, they're close or they're far off. If they're close, just stay in your vehicle. Sit there and listen. Mark down on your map. I heard three bulls here at mile mark or whatever. Okay? If, if, You hear them way off and you think you can get out of your vehicle without making a bunch of noise. Simply get out of your vehicle very quietly. Don't slam the door. Don't even shut the door. Just let the door just go back kind of the closed position and just lean there against your your pickup and just listen and try and figure out, okay, there's three bulls on this side of the road. There's two bulls on this side of the road. And it sounds like there's a whole pile of them up the road. What you're doing is you're taking inventory. When it's dark, they're going to have a tendency to bugle a lot more than they do in the daylight. I think that tactic is huge because you can find where those bulls like to congregate and you can find new areas uh, where those elk are. And a lot of them, you know, you can hear pretty much everything inside, say of a mile, you know, faint bugles way off, maybe just inside of a mile and you can find great areas by just driving and listening. What I see guys doing wrong is they drive, they they don't pull out of the road. They're parked right in the middle of the road, okay? They don't set their lights where they automatically go off. Their cargo light's on. And if a bull's, you know, 200 yards, he probably isn't going to bugle. If it's pitch black dark and you just shut the vehicle off, they think the vehicle's gone. I see people get out. They eh, open the door. Then they shut the door. Then they walk down the road 10 yards. And I think those elk are not going to bugle. Whereas if you just pull off, everything's dark. You have your windows already down. Everyone in your car is quiet. You're going to get most of the bulls sounding off to each other, and they're going to go back to you know carrying on. But when when humans interfere and you know sh- slam doors, lights go on, ding ding ding, the dark. It's just it shuts off the whole program.
2: Yeah, and one thing we do that a lot up in uh, up north too, but. One thing people do as well is they'll pull over and listen. They won't hear anything for five minutes. Start the truck back up, take off, and sometimes that can take ten or fifteen minutes. I've sat there ten, fifteen, twenty, even thirty minutes, and then pretty soon one, two, three, and you know it just takes a minute because you know. It depends on how much traffic they're going to get right there, and and you know how often they're hearing trucks go by that area. But a lot of times it can take longer than you think. So um, that's a really good tip. Uh, whether you're up north, whether you're down south, wherever you are, is you're utilizing time that you can't hunt to scout, and just yep. forget about sleeping because you can do that in October and spend every second you can analyzing what is happening in the woods. Who? How many elk? Who's talking to who? Get a feel for what bull sounds like. He's in charge, or which one's yep. you know, kind of identifying
0: the show. a bu- yeah. Identifying the bulls bugle is huge, and and being able to that's where glassing. If you know if you're in an area where there's a couple water holes around, and you can see some meadows and stuff, and you can hear those bulls bugling, and you find a bull that you want to kill, say he's a seven point or whatever, and you're just like, that's the one I want. Now what you're trying to do is listen to his bugle. Listen to his voice. Does he always chuckle first? Does he just chuckle? Does he chuckle at the end of his bugle? Does he just high pitch? You know, does he not bugle very much at all? Does he glunk? You know, those are all things that, you know, when you get down in the trees with them and you know the bull's bugle, he's as good as dead. Mm -hmm. Because once you know his voice, you can just follow him till you get on him. And I think one of the mistakes people make is they come down in Arizona where you may get on six or seven or eight or 10 or 15 bulls bugling in a group. And if you're just trying to figure out, I mean, I've been in situations where, you know, me and my hunter are looking at each other going, I don't even know which way to go. They're bugling in every direction. You you have to have a direction. You have to have, you know, a focus unless you're just playing the game of trying to, you know, sort through bugles. And that would be another thing I would tell people coming down from the Northwest is you're going to hear a lot of bugling. And if you don't have the ability to glass, to me, it's a numbers game. It's a, it's a game of try and get on as many bulls as you can. And I would say, get on as many bulls as you can without calling. Yeah. Get on them. If it's not a shooter, back out, go to the next bull, go to the next bull, go to the next bull. The more time you spend dinking around with the five-by-six that you don't want to harvest, you're coming to Arizona to shoot a six-by-six that may be your best chance of killing the biggest bull you can. You can't waste time. You only have a 14-day season. You need to look at as many bulls as you can in order to harvest one of the biggest ones.
2: Well, that's true whether you're north, south, wherever you are. And now if you're looking for just harvest any bull – you know, in the Northwest, a lot of guys aren't looking for the big bull. So, but having said that, that goes into whether you're looking for a big bull or not. Spending too much time on one can, uh, you don't have very much time when it all boils down and season is over before you know it.
0: Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I, I want to be clear that, you know, there, there's all types of hunting. There, there's types of hunting where you're just going out to try and harvest a bull, and there's been times where just harvesting a bull is is fantastic, and that, you know, regardless of the size, it was a huge trophy. And then there's times when uh, bulls are bugling great, and you need to focus on one particular bull, and you're going after you've set your mind that you want to kill that particular bull, or you want to kill, you've set a benchmark that you've killed, you know, 18 bulls over such and such, and it's your final, t- you know, your, your best chance to kill one over 300, then, then set your goal high and, and, and try and, uh, you know, utilize or, uh, efficiently set out a plan and try and try and execute that plan as, as good as you can. I, I think, uh, Uh, another tip for guys coming down is be mentally tough and know that it's going to be a grind and you know you're coming to Arizona and you've heard great things but it's still going to be tough it's still going to be a grind and you have to prepare your mind for success you know you have to see yourself being successful and you you can't let you know uh, outside factors come in and make you not successful you have to be you know, set on your goal of I'm going to harvest the best bull that I can. And, you know, I've I've never shot a bull over 320, or I've never shot a bull over 280, or I've never killed a bull over 370, whatever it may be. Once you set your goal, I mean, you have to just charge and and don't take no for an answer type of thing. I mean, I use that tactic in business a lot. And, and it's helped me to just, that's what I've decided I'm going to do. And that's, that's what I'm, you know, that's, I try as hard as I can to be mentally tough to execute that goal. Well, if there's one thing
2: hunters from the Northwest are, it's mentally tough because we're used to going two three weeks without even seeing an elk, so we're pretty good at that part.
0: <laughs> I can tell you that at, in, in most all cases, the hunters that I've guided from the Northwest have been fantastic hunters and have had a lot of grit, and I think that you know, I think that speaks volume for you guys. Um, and you know, the Oregon, Washington, Idaho guys, they're just tickled pink when they come down to Arizona. Uh, A lot of times they say it's some of the best bugling they've ever heard. And, you know, it's, it's enjoyable to hunt with guys like that because they're soaking it all in and they're not going, oh, I got to kill a 330 bull or I'm not going to have any fun. They're having a ball. Um, and, and I have found them to be very savvy. It seems like the Northwest guys, they've got their gear all dialed in and, um, you know, there seems like they're very good archers and, and they can shoot really well. And, um, that's been my experience.
2: Yeah, that's, uh, that's good to hear and, uh, appreciate it. One question I got for you is when you have clients come down and we kind of talked about, you know, setting a number and going after it, when you have someone come into camp, do you Kind of guide them onto what you've been seeing and help them pick a number. What's your advice to folks as far as picking a number before season?
0: One thing I would say in Arizona, because we are an arid state, our antler growth fluctuates very, very much. You could have a bull that that say last year was a 350 bull and say this, let's say this year was a dry year. He could only be a 315 or 320 bull. They can lose, you know, 20 or 30 inches depending on the year. So first and foremost, when they draw a tag uh, in the Southwest, what kind of antler growth year is it? What kind of winter did they have before? What kind of spring rains? How do the antlers? Are they at 100% maximum capacity? Is it 80, 90%? Is it 70%? I mean, I've had years in Unit Nine uh, in 2012 was a great year. There was a lot of you know 350, 360, 370 bulls running around. The very next year in 2013, I want to say I only saw three or four bulls total over 350. So it can it can you know depending on the, the moisture, can vary hugely from year to year. So I think, first and foremost, what kind of year is it that you draw, drew on? If it's a great year, then I think it's realistic depending on what unit. You know, you have to kind of talk to guys and say, you know, what what is kind of the average bull? Like I would say uh, unit uh, uh, 3C is you see average bulls from, say, 280 to 320. You see a lot of those every day. Okay, Unit uh, 23 North, you're going to see bulls from 300 to, say, 330 every day, a little bit higher overall quality. Then you've got your units, you know, say Unit 9. On a good year, I always say you'll see a 350 bull every single day, whereas in 2013, which was a drought year, I think I only saw three or four total in 30 days being the whole month of September. And so you have to set your sights on, not only is it Arizona, but what kind of year are they having? And then I never like to set up personally, and people have this misconception about me and a lot of people that I hunt with and, and a lot of people in Arizona in general. I don't like to set a hunt based on a number. But if I have killed you know X amount of bulls and the biggest bull I've killed is XYZ, I don't think it's bad at all to go into the hunt saying I've got the whole hunt and I'm going to try and kill a bull bigger than what I have already harvested. I think I see a lot of expectations of guys coming to Arizona with the expectation that they're going to see and kill a 400 inch bull. Well, let me, let me tell you something. I've only seen 400 inch bulls. I've, I've probably, uh, harvested and guided for as many 400 bulls probably as any other outfitter out there. And I want to tell you that the number of 400-inch bulls that I've seen are probably, I could use less than two hands to tell you how many I've seen. And that's someone that's, this I believe, is 20th or 21st year of taking the entire month of September off. So my point is there are not 400-inch bulls around every tree. Every year, Arizona maybe will produce one, two, or three bulls that are 400-inch. It's kind of a long-winded answer to your question, but you have to look at what are the average bulls in the unit, what are some of the higher-end bulls in the unit, and then set your goals accordingly. I like to tell guys, hey, if you've killed the biggest bull you've killed is 350, let's go for a 355 or 360. That doesn't mean if I know there's a ton of 370 and 380 bulls that we're just going to shoot the 355 on the first day. But I try and be realistic and say, would you be happy with shooting the biggest bull of your life? Yes. Okay? <laughs> so maybe the first week we go for 370. And if we don't get 370 or above, the last week we try and kill any bull that's bigger than what you've killed. I think that's a pretty realistic goal. Mm hmm. And
2: that's one of those things where goals are individual, and to each person it's going to vary. And one thing I've noticed is that you take someone hunting, and personally, I, I, I set a number, but ultimately, it's going to be about the experience and and the moment when it comes. And a lot, of, I don't like to say that to a lot of people because you could be in a situation, and if you haven't killed a lot of elk, haven't been around a lot of elk you may shoot the first thing you get so excited and you shoot the first one that walks by to me as a DIY hunter, I could hunt every day of season. If I get to hunt 30 days of the season, that's, that's amazing. That was my goal. And you know, at the end of the season, if I get one, I don't, it doesn't really matter a whole lot. Um, last year I passed up a ton of bulls and second to last day I'm waiting. Basically I got hung up with a satellite bull moving in on a herd bull and I was sitting there 50 yards from a satellite bowl for probably a half hour, and then it dawned on me, well, I only have two days left. And I was perfectly happy to take that bowl, fill the freezer, and I was ecstatic about that hunt. So you kind of got to go into it with everyone has their own personal goal. I do see that going to Arizona, you know, that's once in a lifetime or twice in a lifetime depending on how it works. Or, you know, there's not a whole lot of those tags in your lifetime. So – it does change whether whether you're hunting on, you know, an Arizona tag, if you got a unit 9 tag or, you know, if you're hunting on a general season in Oregon. Those are two totally different situations.
0: Yeah, and I think everybody's got to keep themselves motivated and and I think if I've seen it too many times that if people put a total preference or a total uh uh, Base their whole hunt on score they 're going to be disappointed mm-hmm. they 're going to be disappointed. The guys that come into camp that tell me, Hey, I just want to have a great time i 'm excited to have my arizona tag i 'm hunting the whole fourteen days let 's go get them let 's go see the best you know best elk in the world in my opinion let 's go you know go get in the middle of them and let 's do the best we can. It seems like those are the guys that always do better. It's the guys that always can stay strong because, you know, a number is just a number. A number is just a number, but the experience of of the adventure is going to stay with you forever. And, And I encourage people, don't hunt for numbers. And people say, well, geez, Jay, you know, you're always after the biggest, you know, animals you can hunt. Yes, I am. But I am motivated to get my clients the best animal I can. And when I'm hunting on my own, I am I am trying to find the best, the biggest, and what have you, and that's what I try and shoot. But that doesn't mean if I don't get it that I, that I don't enjoy the hunt. I like to always make sure that I'm enjoying what I'm doing. And if it becomes too overwhelming to shoot a 400-inch bull or too overwhelming to shoot a 350-plus bull, then you're not having fun. We're all doing this to have fun. Sometimes... Going above and beyond trying to kill something extraordinary is a grind and not fun. So you have to decide, is that really what you want to do? Because I I have hunters all the time that say, I want to kill a 370 plus bull or nothing. And I say, well, what's the biggest bull you've killed? 325. And I say, okay, I hear what you're saying, (laughs) but I want to talk to you about reality. And I want to talk to you about how tough it is going to be to kill that 370 plus bull. And and that's fine if you're going to hunt with me and that's what you want to do, but I want you to have a great time. And so we we have long conversations about expectations, and I am great if someone says, look, I've killed 47 bulls, 350 and over, I just want a 350 plus or or under, and I just want a 350 bull or or what have you. What I have a hard time is when people have killed very, very few things. And all of a sudden, they're this trophy hunter because they want to go home and tell their buddies they killed a 385.
2: Oh, that's social media effect
0: right there. <laughs> yeah. The other thing I would throw out there is that's going on in our industry is, and, and I just say this because I'm a huge um, – I like to be credible. And I, like, uh, I I like what I say to be the truth. And I like for other people around me what they say to be to the truth. And I think, you know, the social media thing and and all of that, I think in general, hunters like fishermen love to tell fish stories. (laughs) And I would just encourage the listeners out there. And I'm not I'm not accusing anybody of anything other than I think we all can agree that, you know, it's gotten about numbers and it's gotten about, well, mine's 351. Well, mine's 352. Well, mine's 363. You know what? Half the time, the 363 bull is really a 347 bull. Yeah. I, I would encourage everyone to let's get back to being real. Let's get back to being credible. Let's get back to when you say it's a 180-inch buck, let it be a 180-inch buck. And I, I just see – it seems like our industry, and it's, you know, same thing with fishing, you know, you go all day and you fish and you catch 14 inches, and you pull into the takeout and the guy's like, oh yeah, I caught four fish over 24 inches. And you're just looking at him going, really?
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, Jay, I don't know about you, but I passed up like a solid five 380 bulls last year. I just weren't I looking for that 400, okay?
0: <laughs> yeah. And I mean, uh, you know, there are some people that that is their story and, you know then they end up shooting a 405 and you can go okay i guess they weren't full of bull but i think in general it seems like the fish stories are getting longer and longer
2: yeah no kidding well i just assume that if you pass it up it's the same if it was a 250 bull or a
0: 350 bull i don't really care yeah (laughs) it's a bull you could yeah i mean yeah for sure
2: well thanks for chatting jay Uh, it was great to talk to you we should do this again
0: yeah, it's been awesome, uh, Cody. Like I said earlier, I enjoy your podcast and I'm glad we did this and I look forward to meeting you someday and I appreciate the work that you do and, and um, just, uh, uh, yeah, just excited to um, be a part of the hunting podcast world and, and admire what you've got going on.
2: Oh, absolutely. And uh, like you said, all, you know, all the listeners out there, here's another podcast for everyone to listen to, um, for all of us who can't get enough hunting. You know, this is how we deal with that wait until fall. And we're almost there, but, you know, we still got to listen to these podcasts. And another thing is, is the podcasts are great for those long drives to hunt.
0: You know, you just some
2: I'm saving some up, man. I'm telling you, I'm going to save them up because I got a few all-nighters to pull.
0: Awesome. Cody, why don't you tell my listeners where people can find you and I'll do the same.
2: Yeah. So if anybody's looking for it, it's therichoutdoors.net. Obviously, you kind of know the podcast situation. So head over to therichoutdoors.net. You'll find all of our interviews and more as well as if you're looking for game calls. uh, I got a new site, gamecallsupply.com. Check out all the top elk hunting calls, tips, information, guides, how-tos. So if you're looking for some elk calls, head on over to that's GameCallSupply.com. And uh, I think right now we have the TRO product or the uh, coupon code. So if you enter TRO, which is the Rich Outdoors, you'll get 15% off your entire order of calls. Um, So check that out as well
0: awesome buddy and yeah um my podcast is j scott outdoors western big game hunting and fishing uh, you can find me on itunes podbean or stitcher uh, my website is j my instagram at j scott outdoors facebook at j outdoors and uh youtube channel j scott outdoors and i just want to thank uh all the listeners on both sides my listeners and your listeners for all their support and um uh cody it's been great talking with you i look forward to doing it again that's
2: right good uh good to talk to you jay and good luck this fall
0: all right buddy you take care thanks for listening to the Jay scott outdoors western big game hunting and fishing podcast brought to you by gohunt.com insider research faster hunt more go to com forward slash insider and join today